Good morning, church. Thank you for braving the uh, the rain and the cold this morning and, and gathering with us here at WFR. If you're viewing online, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. We're kicking off a new series called Transformed. And it's a study through the book of Romans. When I say study, I am taking liberties with that word. We're not going to have enough time to do a deeply in-depth theological treatise on the book of Romans. What we are going to do is take a look through uh, the entire book and try to get the main points that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book, wants us to have and apply in our lives today. Turn with me, if you would, into Romans chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to try to cover chapters 1 through 3 this morning. Somebody said, if you're preaching and it's going longer than 30 minutes, you should write a book. By the time service ends, I may have part of a book written uh, before you here this morning. Bear with me. I've prayed so much that God would keep me from chasing rabbits. Guys, there's just no way I could give... Uh, uh, enough time to every possible thing I would want to say in Romans chapters 1 through 3. But if God will bless, I'll stay away from stuff that won't, won't give us a clear sense of Paul's intent in the first three chapters. And I believe you'll walk, walk away this morning a little bit informed and blessed has been my prayer. In Romans chapter 1, Paul in verses 16 and 17 lays out what I believe to be his thesis statement. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, everything he's going to say builds around these two verses. And in these two verses, Paul does something very important. The first is he develops a gospel-centered theology. If you're taking notes... That's worth writing down. The Apostle Paul's theology is very gospel-centered. Who wrote the gospel? God of heaven. Who is the substance of the gospel? The Son of God and, in fact, God himself, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And everything the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans is going to be built around that truth. That God's the designer of the gospel, the deliverer of the gospel, and is, in fact, the substance of the gospel itself. The other thing that the Apostle Paul is going to communicate to us in Romans 1, 16 and 17, is that the gospel is something God reveals to his creation. The gospel is something God reveals to his creation. And in that revelation, don't get uh, thrown off by that word, that's kind of a, a, a 30 point scrabble word. That revelation, God revealing the gospel to his creation, also reveals God's righteousness. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. Martin Luther, who kind of started the Protestant Reformation, he was a Catholic guy who tried to live the letter and the law of the Bible read Romans 1, 16 through 17, and his own testimony would be that he misunderstood the righteousness of God as meaning God's just punishment on an unrighteous people. And in Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul's going to clearly depict humanity as unrighteous, as condemned. And Martin Luther would say, every time that I read about God's righteousness, I was filled with rage. He would even go as far as saying, with hatred, that I could not ever attain righteousness 
that would stop my punishment being delivered by God. He was studying the book of Romans. He read Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says it was like the floodgates of heaven opened up and poured down on him. And he understood God's righteousness anew for the first time. That when the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, talks about the righteousness of God that's revealed to his creation through faith, a righteousness that is by faith, what he understands that to be, and it's my understanding too, is that God's righteousness is his free gift of his own righteousness to any and all who will receive it by the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. You guys say amen right there. That's good news. So let me read Romans 1, 16 through 17. Guys, I'm just going to have to speed through this. Please do get a pen handy. I'm going to try to make your wrists a little sore today. I'm going to give you a couple of references. I'm going to try not to chase rabbits. And I'm hoping that you'll take what we talk about today, study it, pray over it, and be encouraged by it this week. This is Romans 1, 16 through 17. Paul's thesis statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And throughout this morning, we're going to be talking about Paul dealing with each of those groups. First, it's to the depraved Gentile. Then it's to kind of an in-between group of, of people who think they're kind of moral. And then it's to the self-righteous Jews. And then in chapter 3, it's all humanity. Uh, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. So he addresses there's kind of a distinction right now in the church. There's Jew versus Gentile. And he's saying this gospel that brings salvation to everyone who believes is available to all, to the Jew and to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, if you've got a Bible or a tablet or a phone that you're following along on, that should be highlighted and underlined, the righteousness of God This is your problem, Paul's going to say. You're condemned. No excuses, no exceptions. Those are my two points this morning. You're condemned, but God's revealed to you a way of escape. And through that way of escape, you can actually be reborn. This is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Okay, Paul, I got it. We need righteousness, but that implies that we're condemned. What can you tell us? This is Paul's audience speaking now, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. What can you tell us, Paul? What can you tell me that would make me feel like I'm in fact condemned? And so in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the apostle makes his case very clear. He would say this in Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who, again, if you've got a pen handy, you need to underline this, suppress. That should be underlined. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul, wait a second. If you're implying that some people can suppress it, that must mean that they can come to know it. And Paul says, absolutely, they can come to know it. What may be known about God, the truth about God, who God is, his character, his his order, what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, the subject in Romans 1 is the depraved Gentile culture. 
It's Greeks. It's any non-Jews. They didn't receive the law. They didn't receive the covenants. And they didn't receive the commandments. That's one reason why the Jews felt like they had an advantage. And so Paul is saying, look, these Gentile people had access to the truth and they suppressed it. Not the truth that came from the commandments and not the truth that came from the covenants and not the truth that came from the prophets, but the truth that came from God who made it plain to them because God's made it plain. It's really important to understand the thrust of those verses. This is not a situation where God's kind of disguised himself and only people who are intellectual enough or humble enough can see through the disguise. Paul's very clear to demonstrate that these depraved pagan Gentiles who didn't have the prophets, who didn't have the covenants and who didn't have the commands can still see God in the world he's created because God has made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, that's the created world, so that people are without, everybody say that next word with me, excuse. Let's do that again. So that people are without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. I've got it on the screen for you here to say, Furthermore, these depraved, uh, sinful Gentiles have decided not just to suppress the truth that God made plain to them and revealed in the created world, but that at one point they had access to it and they decided not to retain, that word should be underlined, retain the knowledge of God, the knowledge of that truth. Furthermore, just as they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, as a result, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Here's what I feel like is important here, and I think there are two things that are important. The first is, nobody is born this way. Nobody is born in a way where they can't access some awareness of God's truth. Now let me pause right there. The danger of what I just said is it sounds like man is going to get the credit for doing something here. I'm saying nobody's born in a way where they can't uh, understand God because God's made it plain. In his created world, he's made it plain. Who created the world and made it plain? God did. Who created man in the image of God with a conscience and a capacity to see God in the world that God created? Who did that? God did. So who gets the credit if man can know truth about God? Man doesn't have anything to do with that. Man didn't create himself. Man didn't create himself in the image of God. Man didn't give himself a conscience. Man didn't create the world. God did all of those things. And so mankind is without excuse. So, so the, the first piece of that is that, is that man is without excuse. We're not born this way. God designed us in his image. He revealed himself to us through the world he created. It's him doing all that. He gets the credit for it. We get none of the credit. But on the other end of this uh, uh, conversation, 
um, you got people like me who are trained in counseling. And I'm very much of kind of the school of thought that how you're raised and the things you've been through in your life heavily influence your behavior later in life. And that's certainly true, but that's still not an excuse. If there's alcoholism in your family, that absolutely influences your behavior in adulthood. But it's not an excuse for your pursuit of alcoholism. If you're married and you're not getting enough um, sexual intimacy and you want to go outside your marriage, the, the situation of your marriage does influence that sinful behavior. Does it excuse that sinful behavior? Absolutely not. If you're married and your emotional needs are not getting met, and so you decide to withdraw and overinvest in the kids or overinvest in work or overinvest in finances, does the context of your marriage have an influence on your misbehavior? Certainly it does. But does it excuse your misbehavior? Absolutely not. Because God's designed you in a way to see His truth in the world that He created, and He gets all the credit for that. Trent, that's a pretty big presumptuous statement. Are you sure the scriptures teach in line with what you're preaching? Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. So in Romans 2, another group of people is introduced. I'm trying to outline this for you while I'm preaching it. Remember, Romans chapter 1, he's talking about depraved Gentiles. A specific group who's away from God, who didn't receive the covenants, didn't receive the commands, and didn't receive the prophets. In Romans chapter 2, the first part of that verse... Is what most theologians feel like is addressed to these critical moralizers. People who are kind of doing okay. Um, could be Jews, could be Gentiles. And they're still looking back at these depraved, pagan, sinful, sexually immoral individuals that he was talking about in chapter 1. They're saying, yeah, those guys got it real bad. I'm glad I'm not like them. And he says, look, all of you guys, Gentiles, you, don't ha- you, might, you might not have the law. But you're designed in a way that by nature, listen to that, by nature, you can do the things required by the law. Do you get the credit if you do that? No, God does. Why? Because he designed you. Does does you doing things that are uh, similar to those kinds of things written in the law have anything to do with your righteousness? No, because righteousness is not by works. It's by grace through faith. That's something God alone does. So, so, And it's easy to conflate what we're talking about here. We're talking about mankind being condemned. Not if mankind has a moral conscience that he can weasel his way into righteousness. You can't weasel your way into righteousness is the case Paul's making here. But do you have the capacity to be condemned because you can't? Absolutely, because you're responsible. By nature, you do the things that are required by the law of the Gentiles. This makes them a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on there. This is theological nuclear explosion written on their hearts. They're made in God's image. The things written in the law are written actually on these people's hearts. Their consciences bear witness to their behavior. Sometimes their conscious, consciousness, their conscious minds, that's confusing, Conscience versus consciousness. Sometimes their conscious minds bear witness against their bad behavior. In other words, when they're doing something bad, their consciences 
are saying, wait a second, dude, you shouldn't be doing this. And sometimes when they're doing something that's good, that same conscience that's by their nature, that's designed by God, that he gets the credit for, are like, dude, that's what I'm talking about. Does that have anything to do with righteousness? No, absolutely not. Is this thing all set up by God? Yes. Does God get the credit for everything? Absolutely. But are, is man designed in a way such that he's responsible for his own misbehavior? That's the case I believe the apostle's trying to make. Let me say this. I'm 32 years old. I do not have a doctorate in theology. There are lots of people who disagree with what I just said. But I prayerfully um, and studiously have, have felt compelled to teach you what I believe about this stuff. And I'm taking a position on it, and I think I can justify my position all throughout the Word of God. So my my challenge to you is to really consider what I'm telling you. You are responsible for your own junk, not your bad marriage. Not the way you were raised, and certainly not God. You're responsible. And He's designed you in a way that you can come to know truth because he's made you in his image and he's created the world in such a way that he's made it plain to you. So you got no excuse for your bad junk other than you're the one who's made the bad choice to do it. You know what excuses do in relationships? Excuses put distance between myself and the person I'm in a relationship with. In relationships, I call that the law of transparency. You cannot have an intimate relationship with another person unless you are honest, truthful, vulnerable, and candid. Those are the four words I'd use to describe the pathway to intimacy. And excuses inhibit your ability to do any of those things. Imagine if every time you forgot to take the trash out, you had an excuse. (laughs) Some of you guys are like, dude, how did you know that? I'm a preacher, man. That's revelation of God right there, brothers and sisters. What if every time you were supposed to take the trash out, you had an excuse? At some point, there's going to be distance between you and your bride. What if every time you made a promise to your kids and you didn't follow through with it, instead of saying, you know what, I dropped the ball, I shouldn't have done that, I'm really sorry, it was some excuse. Well, traffic was bad, or this appointment ran long, or I just wasn't feeling up to it. At some point, there's going to be distance between you and your kids. If you make excuses between you and God as far as your bad behavior is concerned, you're putting distance between yourself and God. Here's the point I want you to know. God does not want excuses from you. They're like armpits. Everybody's got them and they all stink. God doesn't want excuses from you. Listen to this, church. He wants access to you. He doesn't want excuses from you. He wants access to you. And you can't understand the need you have to totally surrender yourself to a righteous God if you still feel like your armpits don't stink. You see what I'm doing there with armpits? Some of you guys got that, right? I'm I'm making it church appropriate, right? Um, God doesn't want excuses from you. He wants access to you. Your excuses put you at a distance between you and God. And he's designed you in in his image. He's revealed himself to you in the world, and you are without excuse. So stop making them. Stop making excuses. 
And start accepting the truth that you are broken, battered, beat up, and scarred. And you have to have the righteousness of God imputed unto you if you're going to be made righteous. Paul's getting ready to make the case that all people are included. Uh, There's no exceptions to this reality that all people are without excuse. That's where he gets to in Romans chapter 3. And we're just going to have to fast forward past a lot of scripture and go straight to that point. Romans 3, 10 through 12. So the tone has gone from depraved Gentiles to a group of people that we would call critical moralizers. Could be Gentile, could be Jew. They're both feeling morally kind of righteous. And he's like, you do have a conscience. And sometimes the conscience can approve you if you're doing good. And sometimes the conscience can approve you when you're doing bad. And so all these people are like, "Ah, man, thank God, because I know everything I do is pretty much good. So I must be good to go. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Every single one of you is condemned. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one person. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul here is not talking about moral goodness. He's already been talking about that in Romans chapters 1 and 2. People are designed in the image of God. God's revealed himself in the created world. People have a conscience. People can do things that are morally good, and when they do, their conscience approves what they're doing. And they can do things that are morally bad, and when they do, their conscience is like, "Uh uh-oh, you're in... You're on faulty ground here. But that doesn't have anything to do with righteousness. If you keep reading in Romans chapter 3, you'd see the purpose of conscience or, or, or your own conscious mind. And the purpose of the law are the same. And it's not to bring about righteousness. It's to reveal your own condemnation and need for God. And the people of Paul's day were, get, were, were getting that so muddled and confused They're thinking, because I know the law or because I'm aware of what my conscience is telling me to do, that I'm good to go. I'm doing right things. I'll be made righteous. I'm safe. I'm protected. I'm in God's house. I'm rolling. And and Paul is saying, no way. You're condemned. There is no one that's righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who, who does good, not even one person. Your own moral good behavior has nothing to do with your righteousness. And in theological circles, when we get those two ideas transposed on top of each other, it muddles our understanding of our own condemnation and God's work in us to make us righteous. In fact, your unrighteousness is such a pervasive, severe problem that you're dead outside of being born again through the gospel. You're as good as dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, does that mean dead to the point of being able to see God's truth in the world that he's created? That's not what Paul teaches in Romans 1 and 2. But if man can see God in the world he's created, is man doing anything? Don't hear what I'm not saying. No, that's not man. Who created the world? God did. Who created man in God's image? God did that. If man can see that, is it man's doing of something? No, it's God's doing of something. And through the gospel, which God reveals his righteousness through, God calls out to all people and is showing grace to all people and bidding all people to come. 
But how can we make that step if we misunderstand our condemnation? So Paul eventually concludes this whole thought in Romans 3, 22a through 23. Now, I bet you guys could recite this if I asked you. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For if I said this, I'm sure you could say it. All have sinned and, if you weren't looking at it on the screen, how many of you could finish that verse? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you could have finished that? Stick them up high and look around. See how many people could have, could have said that. Okay? Lots of people. Now, how many of you could, could, now I want to see another show of hands. I want you guys to look around. How many of you could state from memory without looking ahead in your scripture, Romans 3.24, the very next sentence. If you could do that, raise your hand up high, real high so everybody can see it. One, two guys who are like freaks of studying the Bible and a guy in back. with We got Jace, Dasher, and Shaq, three people. Okay? Here's what happens in churches. There are two camps in terms of understanding our own condemnation. All right? You ready for this? There is one camp where... I am so condemned, I'm so beat up, and I'm so broken that I'm not really convinced I could actually be saved. And I'm not certain if I did what Scripture teaches me, that I could be born again. There's a group of people like that. But then there's a group of people where because of how I worship, or because of the way I worship, or because of the things I believe, or because of the church that I belong to, I'm a little bit better than everybody else. I'm a little bit less condemned than everybody else. Those guys down the street that do it differently, those guys are really the ones going to hell. But those guys in here who are with me, man, we, we're, we're, um, we're a little bit better. We understand some things that they're really messed up about and we really get this. So we're not as condemned. All have sinned. Every single person has sinned and every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed unto us that God reveals to each of us through the gospel. It's a righteousness not based on national origin. It's a righteousness not based on obedience to the law. It's a righteousness not based on your having received special revelation, commandments, covenants, and prophets. It's a righteousness accessible to all through faith. We, we, we have trouble understanding what that is in our culture. And I prayed a lot about finding an illustration that would really sink this concluding thought home. Um, I want you to write down a Japanese word, kintsugi, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. You need to check this out. So I'm looking for a way to illustrate this, and I'm praying about it. And I do what I do when I'm just in a jam, and I can't find a way out, and I need some relief. And I, I pull my wild card out, and I ask my wife, right, like... I'm stuck. I got writer's block. What do I need to do with this part of the sermon? 30 seconds. She was like, oh, you need to check this out and do right here. And then you need to add these two slides and you'll be good to go. And I was just like, Lord, you are the best, man. Thank you so much. Uh, so Kintsugi, in, 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 our, in our culture, when something is broken, we try to make it invisible. Right? Like if you have a, a, a clay jar that shatters and you try to repair it, the main thing you're trying to do when you repair that brokenness is make the brokenness invisible. 
Well, kintsugi does just the opposite. It values the brokenness and fixes it with veins of solid gold. So let me show you um, where I'm going here. It's, 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 this, uh, it's this pot of, of clay that was at one point in time broken and has been fixed, but not fixed in a way that makes the brokenness invisible. Fixed in a way that makes the brokenness beautiful. So this clay piece of pottery will be broken, uh, uh, will exhibit evidence of its brokenness for as long as it exists. You'll be able to see the veins of gold that have repaired the brokenness, but it won't be broken. You'll be able to see the brokenness, but it will no longer be broken. And that's that statement I had up on the screen that I want you guys to write down. Your brokenness ends and everybody's broken. We're all alike. But your brokenness ends where your new life in Jesus Christ begins. Everybody's broken. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins. We're under the old Adam. And the the curse of being under the old Adam is death. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. When we have had the righteousness of Jesus Christ imparted to us... Our brokenness ends and our new life begins. Does our brokenness become invisible at that moment? No, we still have the scars of our old brokenness. But those old scars end up being a beautiful testimony of God's grace and healing in my life. One of the writers who studies this a lot says, Imagine a pot that was complete and put a lid on it and you shine a light on the outside of the pot. Would any of the light be able to get in? Not unless there were some cracks. And so it's sometimes the brokenness in our life and the cracks in our life that allow us to see our need to be healed. There's another piece of kintsugi that I wanted you guys to take a look at. This is a, this is a, I felt like this would be appropriate. This is a heart made of white that's been broken and has been fixed with threads of gold. And some of you this morning, your brokenness is brokenness of heart. Some of you is brokenness of spirit. And that's what I think that first pot in some ways represents. Like, I've tried to bear too much of a burden and my spirit feels broken. Or some of you have either lost loved ones or marriages have failed or you've got kids that have strayed or you're dealing with some big major decision or God's leading you into an area of life that feels like it's overwhelming, like you can't, um, you can't deal with it and, and, and for whatever reason maybe your heart feels like it's broken. And God can, God can take those broken pieces and He can put them back together, but He doesn't do it with gold or silver. He does it with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you after the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to your life, He sees no brokenness. He only sees the blessed vessel that's been remade. That's where Paul is trying to get us to in these first three chapters of Romans. Guys, we're all equal. We're all responsible and we are all without an excuse. 
There are no exceptions to those truths. God doesn't want excuses from you. He wants access to you. And if you give him access to you, and what you'll find is your brokenness ends where your new life in Christ begins. You'll still have the scars, but those scars will be testimonies to the grace of God that's been applied to your life. Not fixed with gold or silver, which Jesus would say can be corrupted and will eventually perish, but with the everlasting blood of the Son, the substance of the gospel. That's what he started with. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. It's the blood of Jesus Christ who is the substance of the gospel that can put your broken life back together. That's Romans 3.24. You guys could have finished the sentence, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I got that, Trent. But what about this? All have been justified freely. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So wherever you're at on the two ends of that continuum. Man, I'm telling you, some of you in this service have felt like you have been so broken and beat up, you're crushed like into microscopic powder. And it's like, Trent, I just don't think anything can put me back together. Man, the same God who created that powder is the master potter who knows where every single microscopic flake needs to be reset. And he can reset it with the blood of Jesus. And some of you have used excuses to shield yourself from God, thinking I'm not as condemned or I'm not as broken or I'm not as messed up. And it's kept you from God. And you need to see, man, your brokenness, with, when the blood of Jesus Christ is applies is a reason to bless God and glorify God. So you don't have to hide either way. And I think that's what's so profound when we start talking about this idea. My wife married me with some idea of my brokenness, not the whole idea, but now she pretty much knows. And she stays and that she knows it and has decided to stay makes me feel more loved by her than if I had shielded it from her for our entire marriage. And when I can come to terms with my own brokenness and see God not leaving me or abandoning me or rejecting me because of my brokenness, but on the contrary, somebody get excited pursuing me and shedding Christ's blood for me and restoring me into his family, that's intimacy with God. That's what he wants from you. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants from you. He takes, he, he, he introduces an idea in Romans 3, um, the first verse, the, the Jews are like, well, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And he, he answers that question in Romans 9, but he goes as far as saying, I would be accursed if it would mean that all of my brothers could get saved. Because he understands what he's trying to tell you this morning, that there is no brokenness too great to not allow the blood of Jesus Christ to restore and recreate. So I'm going to close in a prayer. That, that's, that's Romans 3 in a miraculous Romans 1 through 3 in a miraculous length of time. You guys later today need to give God some glory that that didn't take the four hours I really wanted it to. Okay? (laughs) And you guys were sports, man. Nobody threw tomatoes. I know I said some stuff some of you can't agree with. But, man, I just wanted to share that to you. I'm I'm a counselor. I'm a broken dude. So other than theology, man, I'm seeing God healing his people. And that's always what my preaching is going to focus. I want to be a theological giant, man. I want to know all the answers and answer every question. 
but I'm too consumed with God and what He's done in my life and what I see Him doing in the lives of others not to boil it down to that truth, which is where Paul intends for us to go. I'm going to pray. If you got a need, I invite you to come forward and then we'll get you out of here. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I know that uh, as a young guy, I'm not doing it justice to try to get through all three chapters of Romans in 30 minutes. But I'm, I'm praying that your grace and mercy just landed on the ears of some of these guys. There are people who are making excuses for their shortcomings. They're blaming it on their family of origin or their formative year experience or their marriage and you're standing before him today saying, you don't have an excuse. I've made myself plain to you. And there are some people under the sound of my voice who feel so condemned that they're not even certain that you've actually saved them when they obeyed the gospel. To those people you're saying, your brokenness ended where your new life in Jesus began. Not that you're not going to have any more scars, but that those scars are reasons to glorify you, God. And there are some who, who would rather deny their condemnation than embrace it for fear of what all that would mean. And I pray that those walls would come down and those people would stop making excuses. And they would run to you in their brokenness. For if they do, they'll, they'll, they'll receive the blessing of your, of your righteousness, God. Uh, my heart's heavy for those families in the church that have been burdened this last week. I just pray we as a family can just be tender with each other, man, and that we can love each other and love you. I ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me while together we sing. If you've got a need, please respond this morning.